Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast. I'm Brian O'Connor, Lead Content Editor for No-Till Farmer. The Andersons sponsors this program, which features stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Anderson's high yield programs make it easy to plan a season long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. This week's episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast is a continuation of last week's podcast. In it, Dwayne Beck talks about establishing crop rotations. And if you haven't listened to it, I recommend you go back and go through it. Beck recently retired from his position as the director of the Dakota Lakes Research Station in Pierre, South Dakota. This presentation was delivered in 2016 at the National No-Till Convention and deals with crop rotations. You'll occasionally hear the audience clapping and laughing in the background. You'll also hear them asking questions at the end of the presentation. And maybe Master of Ceremonies Daryl Brugink as he closes that out. At the time of this presentation, Beck was advocating for vegetables as part of crop rotations. Without further ado, here's Dwayne Beck. So let's look at some different kinds of rotations. The ones most of you think about are simple rotations. This is more like a college part of the course now, which is boring as hell in a big room. But here's a simple rotation. Winter wheat, corn, canola, spring wheat, winter wheat, corn, sunflower, winter wheat, corn, pea. These are all corn, soybean. These are all simple because they go in the same order every time. So when you send the hired man out, he knows that he can spray all the wheat stubble with whatever. And, and, and if you got this rotation, you can spray everything that's going to go to corn, you just spray the wheat stubble. You don't have to get confused, right? So limited number of crops to manage and market. Only three crops, two crops. All corn, but it's limited, and all corn is behind wheat, or all winter wheat is into spring wheat or whatever. The conditions for that corn is the same on every acre of corn that you have. And the weather's variable. So it wouldn't be better to kind of spread your risk a little. Oh, you got crop insurance. Oh, well, hell, forget all this. Right? You got crop insurance. They'll take care of it if you have a problem. I got to ask you a philosophical question. Crop insurance is subsidized at about a couple years ago, $14 billion a year. If it's a good thing to subsidize crop insurance, isn't it a good thing to subsidize health insurance? Or is it the other way around? Just a philosophical question. This isn't a presidential debate, but it's a question you should ask your congressman. Right? Why are you for this and not for this? Rotations with perennial sequences. Corn, soybean, corn, soybean, corn, soybean. And then you throw in the reset button. Four years of alfalfa or four years of grass seed. So you say, okay, I'm going to do that on purpose. I'm going to do this kind of stupid rotation and throw in a perennial sequence. That's what grandpa and my dad and grandpa used to do. Okay. 
Still, limited number of annual crops to manage the market. Excellent place to spread manure on your perennial crop, whether that's grass seed. We use grass seed for part of this. We grow tall grass prairie, uh, switchgrass seed, or big blue stem seed. We can probably produce more soil structure than annual crops, especially if you have a grass or grass mixture in there. If we're going to do biomass crops, which I think is a stupid idea, but if we're going to do biomass crops for ethanol or whatever, let's do it with perennials. Because there we can take that biomass off at the right period of time and take very few nutrients out, and we're leaving the root in place. Biomass crops probably have some potential there. We're going to use it for grazing and seed production. It's difficult to manage a sufficient percentage of your land in perennial crops without doing grazing, because you can't physically harvest 40% of your farm as forage. If you do alfalfa and sell the alfalfa, it's one of the most degrading things you can do to your land, because all the nutrients leave. If you do alfalfa and feed your cattle and put the manure back, it's better, right? Compound rotations. Here we just take two simple rotations and put them end to end. Spring wheat, winter wheat, corn, soybean, corn, soybean. Or you can just have one wheat and then corn, soybean, corn, soybean. I call this my mother-in-law rotation or banker rotation. My wife is an agronomist. She got an ambassador's degree in agronomy. It took her about 20 years to figure out why. She always was taking umbrage at me, calling. Then finally she realized what the joke was, and she was all right with it. The reason you do this is if you get a wet year, let's say your mother-in-law or your banker is coming to visit you in June. You show her this corn, the one that's behind the soybeans, because it's going to be big and growthy and look great, and it's June, and it's wonderful. But in South Dakota, we often don't rain in the summer. So if she comes to visit in September, you show her the corn that's into wheat stubble, which in June probably looked a little puny and was struggling some. Okay? Spreads the risk. Spreads the risk of the... Still have a limited number of crops to manage. Creates more than one sequence for some of the crop types. Limited ability to spread workload. You still only have three crops there. So this thing about sequence and interval. In the Western Corn Belt, we have a corn rootworm beetle that has got extended diapause, right? You all familiar with that? Natural habit for a corn rootworm is a beetle eats on the silks, lays its eggs at the base of the corn plant. The egg goes through a diapause, becomes a larvae, and it eats the roots the next spring. If you're doing corn, soybean, corn, soybean, that baby has nothing to eat if it's a normal habit. So we've selected, by doing all corn, soybeans, we've selected for a species that has a two-year rest phase. The egg gets laid, it goes into diapause for a year and a half, and hatches during the corn year. Mother Nature has been playing this trick longer than you have, right? I mean, when she sees what Monsanto's doing, you know, with all their genetic technology and whatever, he goes, oh, you damn amateurs, try this. <laughs> I've been doing this longer than you have. Boom. Oh. You know. Okay. In the Eastern Corn Belt, you have some 
corn root beetles, where the pregnant or gravid females fly from the cornfields to the soybean fields to lay their eggs. Right? Soybean variant. I call them the blonde corn rootworm beetles. Right? Because everybody goes, look at that dumb blonde. Well, the dumb blondes aren't usually dumb, right? Flying over there doing their thing. If we plant all of our corn into wheat stubble, you get the same thing happening. You'll have, have them learn to fly into wheat stubble. You can't be consistent either sequence or interval. Rotations where crop within the same crop type vary. Barley, winter wheat, corn, sunflower, millet, or pea, sorghum is the other one. I talk a lot about this complementarity where sorghum and corn go into the same markets to a large extent. We do a lot of work where we grow sorghum and corn in the same rotation because sorghum breaks, corn rootworm, corn borer, corn rootworm, all those things, gray leaf spot, gosses wilt, all those things you worry about with corn, it breaks those cycles. Still gives you a product that is going into the same market and actually goes in at a premium right now because the Chinese will buy sorghum at a premium to corn because it's not GMO. We can create a wide array of crop type by sequence combinations. It's got this complementarity I talk about, sorghum and corn. I've got papers on this. It requires substantial crop management and marketing skills. That's why you're a farmer. You're the manager and the, you gotta have those skills, crop management skills. Used to be you could be a farmer if you could drive straight. Well, we all got auto steer. We don't need you to do that anymore, right? So you gotta up your, up your abilities. And then stacked rotations, which are the ones all the college kids that come to visit always like me when I talk about stacked rotations for some reason. Uh, where crops or crops within the same crop type are grown twice in succession. It looks stupid to do wheat, wheat, corn, corn, soybean, soybean. This is an example. We actually do this one on irrigation. Why would you do that? Well, it's not consistent in either sequence or interval. It gives us these long breaks, and the, the real reason for doing rotation is these long breaks. And these are breaks in biological time, not in chronological time. So when you throw a cover crop in there, it's biological time. If you don't have a cover crop there, just have a stale seed bed. You're not getting any biology, so the time stops. But if you throw in a crop, you get, you get things happening, okay? Keep the pest population diverse or confused. Diversity in sequences and intervals. Mix of long and short residual herbicides. If I do a stacked rotation with corn, corn, or milo corn, I can use a high rate of atrazine and not worry about carryover. Now, you may not want to use a high rate of atrazine here for water quality issues. You may not be allowed to, but we are allowed to because it's dry country. We're big, our biggest problem with using a high rate of atrazine is carryover. So we can use a high rate of atrazine that first year, go to another crop that is tolerant the next year. What that does is it makes a long and short residual herbicide program, reduces the cost, and then it minimizes the chance of resistance. I'm not going to get Roundup resistance if I'm doing atrazine in the milo, I'm doing Roundup in the corn, I'm coming into the maybe the first year of soybeans with a long residual ALS herbicide and not using the <coughs> Roundup trick in that soybean. And then the two years of wheat, I'm not using Roundup in at all. 
you're only using Roundup two times out of six years in crop. Two-year break between corn and wheat. The reason for that is this head scab or fusarium thing, the thing that breaks down, the fungus that breaks down corn stalks, it's the one that causes head scab and wheat. We probably can reduce the risk of developing biotype resistance. And we can reduce the cost of herbicide programs. We know that. It says not well tested. We've been doing this for about 20 years, so we're starting to get really comfortable with it. Uh, <clears throat> some crop sequences may not be ideal. There's some crops like canola and canola I wouldn't do just because of white mold would eat your lunch. Okay? You've got to kind of understand what you're doing with it. But the goal is to be in inconsistent. Here's some other ones. Uh, wheat, 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 sorghum, 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 sunflower, 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 right? I was in Kansas, and, and, and an extension guy said, I got a farmer who goes wheat, 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 until he gets joined goat grass. Then he starts growing sorghum until he gets shatter cane, and then he goes to sunflower until he gets white mold, and then he goes back to wheat. And then they all laughed. And I said, well, that's smarter than somebody doing corn, soybean, corn, soybean, corn, soybean, and calling up Monsanto and saying, I need a new herbicide. Okay? I mean, at least he's responding. Uh, ones we use to code lakes, we got this wheat, wheat, uh, sorghum, First, usually corn and then a broadleaf. We got this rotation, it's five years. Four of those years are high residue crops. This is our best rotation on dry land because we're a prairie, just like you guys are, or you're a forest, which is even more carbon. You can't put low carbon stuff in there. We've got to push high carbon to these things. We've got some real heavy soils, true vertisols, where we do two wheats, both winter wheats, then we do a catch as catch can broadleaf. What that means is whenever the ground gets dry in the spring, we plant a broadleaf in there, whatever is appropriate for that time. Because if it rains, you won't get it planted in that real heavy residue of two years of wheat. Then we do milo or sorghum, corn, and then uh, pea, canola, or flax, which are cool season broadleaves after that last corn going back to the winter wheat. Uh, winter wheat, corn, pea, uh, winter wheat, soybean, corn, milo, pea. Uh, this one is half broadleaves. It's like a corn soybean, but better from a weed control standpoint. That one's being changed because it's degraded to the soil to the point that after 25 years, I'm not going to do it anymore. So we're going to put a perennial grass into there. Irrigated rotations, continuous corn, corn soybean. We have only one field of corn soybean left. And then we've got these other more diverse rotations. Uh, there's no set, set recipe, no best rotation. Uh, I didn't pick your wife. I told a young guy that one time, he was trying to get me to tell him what rotation to use. And I said, you see, you just got married. Still had his ring on. Most farmers get rid of it. The first time they get caught on something, they put them in the drawer. He said, yeah, last week. I said, who picked your wife? And he said, I did. I said, well, then you got to pick your own rotation. Uh, <clears throat> individual field may be differing treatments depending on the soil, the landlord, or proximity, or history, or ownership, or whatever. Just understanding these principles. I've got a paper that covers all these rotations. If you email me, I'll just send it to you. So here's our <clears throat> irrigated stuff, which is closer to what you guys talk about. Corn, soybean, rotation. If I put in a cover crop that gives me 7.3 bushel acre average versus no cover crop. We use cover crop on everything now. So in, in, in 2013, soybeans with cover crop, 62.9 bushel acre. It had been 55 without the cover crop. If we do a corn, corn, soybean, wheat, soybean rotation with a big cover crop after this wheat going to this soybean, 
cover crop there before this soybean, whatever. Um, 73.6 bushel, 81.2, these two different years versus that 65. Okay, so cover crop increased soybean yield 7.3 bushels on historically, but the crop diversity increased soybean yield by 15, 62.9 versus 78.8 average between those two years of soybeans in that diverse rotation. Corn, similar, continuous corn, long-term type thing, 203 bushel acre continuous corn, 217 corn soybean, 235 first year corn is like 250 or 60, second year corn is more like the 217. Average is 235. Okay, so in that rotation where we have continuous corn, if I had 5,000 acres, I'd have 1 million 15,000 15, bushels of corn. And I need five combines and 22 semi trucks just to haul the damn stuff, right? And big dryers and all kinds of fun things. Corn, soybeans, if I did that in the same things, I've got about half, more than half as much corn and I've got 157,000 bushels of bean. The interesting thing is when I do this corn, corn, soybean, wheat, soybean, <clears throat> less corn, but actually I have more beans here than I have here. 40% of my land grows more beans than 50% does. And I get 120,000 bushels of wheat. So, would you trade 72,500 bushels of corn for 120,000 bushels of wheat plus 350 bushels of soybean plus less herbicides, less seed cost because the first year corn here is a non-GMO, right? Savings. But just sheer bushels, you still win by being more diverse. It's all about building organic matter, managing the ecosystem. Organic matter makes a difference. With on-textual crafts, organic matter increased from 1% to 3%, the available water capacity doubles. One of the reasons your land waterlogs and floods and whatever is that it doesn't hold as much water as it did when grandfather got here. You took a soil that used to hold 12 inches and now it holds 6. And so when you get a big rain, it tends to waterlog. And when you don't get a rain, it tends to get drouthy on you. When soil water storage capacity is low, much of the rain that falls during extended periods of precipitation is lost. In contrast, high water storage capacity combined with effective capture rain over the winter, spring can support a crop through dry periods. Concentrate on having your soils wet during the dry part of the year. Not just having them dry during the wet part of the year. Concentrate on having them cool for good root growth during the hot part of the year not just warm during the spring when you want something to grow fast. All tillage tools destroy soil structure. All tillage tools decrease water infiltration. All tillage tools reduce organic matter. All tillage tools increase weeds. If you run a vertical tillage machine across your ground, lots of data is out there. They'll give it to you if you want it. It'll cut your infiltration rate in half in a long-term no-till field. It's like putting your finger over the top of a, a soda straw. Tillage is to agriculture what fracking is to petroleum. They both increase the speed and extent of nutrient removal from the resource, leaving the resource degraded. Our parents and ancestors came here. My first ancestors came to Illinois, and then they left Illinois and went to the Dakotas. Okay, So they degraded the soil in Illinois, and then they left and went to the Dakotas. Some experts say they propose using tillage as a means of addressing weed resistance. If tillage was so good at getting rid of weeds, they should all be gone. <laughs> right? 
we've done enough damn tilling. They should be out of here. It doesn't work. Continuous low disturbance, no till in combination with a diverse rotation and cover crops is a biological answer to a biological problem. It's looking forward, Sarah Singla from France, looking forward instead of looking backwards. When her grandfather used to plow in France, he was looking backwards. When he no-tilled, he looked forward. We'll come back to Dwayne Beck's presentation in a moment. Before we do so, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Andersons, for supporting today's podcast. A nutrient management program is essential to maximize crop productivity and yields. Providing the right nutrients at the right time throughout the growing season is key. The Andersons high yield programs make it easy to plan a season-long approach for many row and specialty crops. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash high yield to download the high yield programs and get instant product recommendations for corn, soybeans, wheat, potatoes, and more. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with the little known no-till farmer fact. I've fielded questions from a few readers in uh, recent months about uh, the stratification of phosphorus and potassium in no-till soils. And we got some long-term data from plots at the Calmer Research Center in Alpha, Illinois, that shows that surface-applied phosphorus and potassium leads to a significant stratification. In plots that have received no phosphorus and potassium for a dozen years, at a soil depth of more than three inches, the amount of available potassium and phosphorus went down dramatically. Incorporating P and K into the soil versus surface applying definitely improves the likelihood of profitability. And now we'll get back to the conversation. You discussed here uh, the, you know, carbon in the soil, and I've got some guys who are proposing to put carbon down uh, with a machine and add it to the ground. Is it practical? Can you add enough? Is it going to solve a problem? Is it going to, is it going to make a difference? I mean, with, with exhaust going in the, in the ground? No, we're, we're, we're talking about using carbon that would be a process from, uh, they're, they're typically using, using carbon that's coming from, uh, from wood chips. It's okay, but it's not much. There's, uh, did everybody hear that question? You, okay. Uh, you want to know if it made sense to use carbon coming from processed wood chips and whatever is a way of adding carbon to the soil. It makes sense within reason. I mean, that's what you're doing with manure and, and whatever. You, you got to add the other things and hydrogen and whatever to balance what you put on with carbon. But there's, there's 2 million pounds in roughly in the top six inches of soil. And, and if you have one add 1% to that, that's 20,000 pounds, which, which is a lot of stuff, right? I mean, it's, you, you really start talking a lot of volume, 10 tons. And then, and, and then a lot of that will, in the process of turning into organic matter, will be lost in the transformation process. So it's okay if it's cheap enough, but. From Southern Missouri, um, we've been doing cover crops uh, partly for our, our diverse li livestock pasturing system for our dairy and our beef cattle. And uh, we do grow milo and uh, barley and things like that that we bring all the way to harvest. But I heard you were saying that you're using multiple years of atro atrazine and putting on heavy rates. 
I've had a wreck with that on my cover crops because they won't. Uh, I've had some uh, cover crops that just won't function with yeah. too much atrazine. Yeah, and that and that's that's the the devil in the detail of using that trick of long residual. You 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 kind of tie your hand on the cover crop thing. Where we will have the most success with this, or use the high rates of atrazine, is actually on dry land, where between milo and corn, there's not a time or b moisture to do to do anything other than have snow. <laughs> Southern Missouri doesn't understand this, but by the time we harvest the milo, there's, the ground is pretty well frozen, so there's not a cover crop period between then and when corn's planted. So the high rate of atrazine, for instance, is a good tool. But you could use higher rates of atrazine than you can if you're not uh, you're, you're not stuck with only using Roundup in your corn. Put it that way. You got different tools. Dwayne. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that you saw that legumes will add supplied nitrogen to a crop in a no-till system, and that people don't see it in a tillage system. What is the explanation of that? Mycorrhizae. Mycorrhizal vascular or muscular mycorrhizal fungi. And if, if if you can say that, see, then nobody asks you a question. That's why they, that's <laughs> they go, shit, he might ask me something I don't know. But it's a it it's these webs of mycorrhizae that if if you there's some really neat stuff out on YouTube now that looks at the forest where where these webs of mycorrhizae take nutrients from here and bring it over here and what the corn is giving the mycorrhizae carbon in return and then it's getting nitrogen and other nutrients. Um, we see this in one of the big Ray Wards here from Ward Labs in the second row and he and I puzzle over some things. We have some fields because we're next to the Missouri River that we've drawn to less than five parts per million Olson in terms of phosphorus on purpose. So we don't have high pea soil sitting next to the river. And because we don't want stuff getting in the river. And we don't get a response to phosphorus yet at that level because we have so many mycorrhizae. But if I would go out there and work that ground once, I'd have huge differences in, in phosphorus response. So the phosphorus soil tests have been calibrated for tilled systems, we may need to recalibrate them. Is that fair, Ray, to say that we may need to recalibrate them for no-till or think? I, I, I have not, I have not recalibrated. No, but that's supposed to be a university thing. But we don't have those anymore, so <laughs> whatever. We, you know, we don't have the same emphasis, but that's, that because what's happening is mycorrhizae is doing a good enough job of getting this quote-unquote unavailable phosphorus that you've been scared about all these years. All, all it is is unavailable, or it's not available to run into the, into the lake or the river. It's not available to your crop unless it has mycorrhizae. But other than that, it's there. But if the mycorrhizae can help you get that and they won't help push it into the river, that's a good thing. See, that's, that's kind of the way the old ecosystem used to work. Dwayne, yes. over to your left. Uh, you had a slide up there that uh, with the earthworms uh, showing how it uh, provides water infiltration, uh, nutrient movement. I'm in a situation where uh, we struggle sometimes with uh, lower pHs and so we're having to put 
uh, calcium lime or something like that on. Is there any chance that earthworms will move calcium through the soil, or does that fix to the top? No, they, they will. A couple things there. Number one, uh, the lime that you put on, if you get a small rainfall before you get a big rainfall, it won't necessarily move into the into the night crawler holes. Some people say, well, you put your fertilizer on, you get a rain, and it goes down the night crawler holes. But the, what, if you're putting your, your fertilizer on in a band that's in the soil, that won't move in the holes. So that's why we're side banding. If you're broadcast like with lime, it'll stay on top, but the night, the night crawler will eventually take that down. One of the things with my alfalfa and corn growing together, the alfalfa, the, the perennial, what the perennial would do, if you have low pH soil, you put in three or four years of perennial and don't take off the residue, graze it or do whatever, that lime from deep comes right back to the surface. That's really what the function of that perennial was. Is that in, in the rainforest, in, in Kofi Boa, his perennial sequence is rainforest. So they'll put in about seven years of rainforest, and then the traditional farmers would slash and burn, but he slashes and mulches and, and does cover crops and whatever, so he doesn't burn and lose all that nutrient they accumulated. But that deep root system of the tree comes, goes down and takes all those nutrients that are leaching deep and bringing them back to the surface. Your trees did the same thing, and they fell in the way of, of leaves on the surface, or the, or the grasses did that and the animals grazed them and the, all got back to the surface that way. See, and that's, but the, yeah, the, 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 well, Ray was at my house and we dug, he left me. Oh, there you are. We dug that soil pit that time Jill was there and we were, was at about the second or third week of June and we had roots at four feet. And we had soybean roots at four feet and they had nodules all the way down going in the earthworm channels. So I got my witness here. Dwayne, uh, you said that you uh, needed to introduce livestock onto your farm. Uh, what makes you say that and what are your plans <laughs> to do so? Well, <clears throat> I can't continue to sell my nutrients. And I think one of the things that, that livestock bring that we can't get with fertilizer is biology. You're starting to see a lot of biological amendments and stuff like that. There's somebody sells one called a bag of bugs or whatever. Dan Towery was telling me about it. It's called bag of bugs or something like that. So I'm, I'm going to get, Dan's in the audience. I got a picture for you, Dan. I got a picture of my cows. They're bags of bugs is what they are. If you think, if you think of what cows do. Now, the other way of thinking about that in cold climates, the biology in the soil stops <coughs> in cold climates, stops when it gets cold, pretty much. The biology in the rumen is almost identical to what goes on in the soil, or a good share of it in terms of cellulose digestion and all this stuff. And it goes on all winter. So my cows, which are grazing today, and they'll be grazing this weekend and whatever, we swath graze them, uh, stock graze them. Uh, <clears throat> they, that biology, what they're doing with my residue is going on during the winter time when I don't have any other biological activity going on. So that's an interesting way of thinking about that. How do we plan to do it? We want, we're going to, this is part of our Buffett series of projects, but we're going to, we're going to try to design a self-propelled grazing cell. 
So we actually managed the cattle much as we could in confinement in terms of <coughs> having that kind of <coughs> way to monitor them and whatever, but be able to move them around in the field, be able to call them up on my smartphone and look at the cows. And if, if one of them is moving too much or not moving enough, the computer would figure it out and call me and say there's something wrong. Uh, you farm on a river uh, which probably floods. Do you have any insight on rotations or cover crops in a floodplain? I farm on a river that doesn't flood anymore because they put a dam in. It's going to start flooding again in about 50 years once the dam is silted in. Uh, <laughs> well, duh, I don't know. Uh, I do have some insight. There's, there's guys that have issues with, with closed depressions that flood. And, and the other thing, you know, uh, the, the thing there is to get something growing as fast as you can. Fallow syndrome <coughs> is, is what happens. Your mycorrhizae is dead when it floods. And so fallow syndrome is where you, you could have high P-testing soils, but your corn doesn't grow well. And that's because you don't have the mycorrhizae there. And, and so placement of fertilizer, probably some pop-up there is important. But first, let's get some flax is very highly mycorrhizal. Oats is very highly mycorrhizal. I think people grow too many brassicas. Um, <clears throat> they don't have very much fiber. We do some brassica, but we don't do lots of them. Um, they're not that great at cow feed either. Yeah, Dwayne, uh, pros and cons about hauling fertilizer out of the field lot <laughs> and putting it on my field. Um, if you're putting concentrated fertilizer on a frozen field, it's probably not the best way to do it. Because if you do get a big rainfall, it can go away. Um, in, in, in Denmark, they have to put their fertilizer on top of the ground, not in the ground, which is interesting. They have to no-till, have a cover crop, and play, apply the pig poo underneath the cover crop, which is, but that's where some of these cover crops really come in as a place to put manure on when it's not freezing and you got a cover crop that can take it up right away and, and lock it up and that catch and release thing. Uh, yeah, Dwayne, uh, 60 years ago, hardly anybody was playing a soybean. Now they're pretty ubiquitous across the country. What future crops do you think farmers should be planting uh, for the future instead of being stuck in this corn-soybean rut that we've been <laughs> in? God, if I knew that, I wouldn't be stupid enough to work for what I work here for, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, human edible crops. I mean, we're we're going to we're going to need to produce more crops that are actually food. So we grow things like lentils and field peas and chickpeas and some of those kind of crops. Um, I think soybeans are okay. We just can't grow them every other year. I mean, it's a case where we've kind of built an industry that, because we need the protein, but there's a lot of different ways to get protein. And we need the oil, and there's lots of different ways to get the oil. And, but we, we've kind of <clears throat> grown this industry around one crop giving us both of those. But, you know, we do flax and canola and 
and and those kind of things for oilseed crops, sunflowers, a lot of sunflowers grown in our area, and then and then in terms of of protein, uh, those are pretty good protein sources too if you press them. And then with peas and lentils and some of those direct human edible stuff. And and peas, if you feed peas to, to beef, we've done these studies, if you feed peas versus distiller's grain or or soybeans or whatever, the steaks are more tender and more juicy if they've had peas for a protein source versus those other ones. It's really interesting stuff. And taste panel stuff. Not a, they did the shear test with a shear measurement, so it was a and then they also did a taste panel, and the taste panel consisting, 90% of the people were picking the pea fed beef out as being better. And 90% of a taste panel never picks anything. We had to redo it two or three times because they didn't believe that number could be that good. Yes. Uh, I just want to thank you for opening my mind years ago to all the possibilities. Um, since then, we've we've been able to do things like uh, instead of intensive cropping, we graze crop for several years, uh, then go to corn, soybeans. Uh, Does your my, wife agree? My wife has agreed. My sons both came back. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, and they they wanted to integrate cattle into the the operation, and um, you know, just if I wouldn't have had. If you wouldn't have opened the, had the key uh, to unlock it, I wouldn't have been able to, to to do that. And I really appreciate that. Well, I appreciate the thoughts. I'm thinking you're probably smart enough. It wasn't just me. Right? Yes. Hi, Dwayne. Uh, several years ago, I heard you speak. And when you were speaking to cover crops, you had said that you wanted at least two species, preferably a sink and a source. Uh, are you... As far as, the, and now we've got multi-species are being touted. Uh, your, how far down that road are you as far as more diversity or more species in a cover crop blend, or are you into cover crop blends? Yeah, I think blends are important. I, I think you've got, I've got a top 10 list on cover crops. First thing is decide what you want to do before you do it. And we do a lot of stuff that's maybe two or three or maybe four species. I don't know that there's magic. Some people claim you got to have seven or you don't get anything happening or whatever. But I, I'm not sure I've seen that. I had a graduate student, we did some work on it. But mixtures are definitely great. And what do you want it to do? I want them to grow at different times. For one thing, the thing we're grazing right now is we're swath grazing uh, oats and, and German millet or, you know, hay millet that was planted after weed harvest. And, and then we swathed it right before everything froze and it's been laying there ever since and it's under about this much snow but the cows just go in and put their head down and they know exactly where it's at, just the way they go. They just have a great time in there. But I wanted, I wanted the hay mill to take off and grow when it was warm and the oats just kind of sat there and as soon as it gets about 38 degrees, the hay mill decides it shouldn't be there and it dies. And, and then the oats grows, and it grows way late into the fall. Now, this field's going to go to soybeans, so I didn't throw any broadleaves in there. So I didn't want to bring any kind of root disease stuff across. Um, I do have volunteer cereal grown in there, the, the, the volunteer winter wheat and the volunteer spring wheat, depending on whether it's spring wheat or winter wheat, that we, <clears throat> we had there. That's growing or grew, and it's in the swath, and the winter wheat's actually still green underneath there. So 
that, that would be kind of the minimum of what we do. And then a lot of times we'll have four or five where we're going to go to corn. The next thing you're going to swath graze is where it had wheat and we're going to go to corn. And that had peas, lentils, dwarf essex, rapeseed, oats, and flax. And it was swath. So that's what we have for dinner. <laughs> Dwayne, in the uh, spirit of diversity, I figure we better have a question from Canada for you. Yes, Cedric. Um, so Can I, I tell him about Brandon? Well, maybe, maybe later, maybe later would be a better time. Um, so as you know, our, our soils out east are dealing with podzols. They've got acidic uh, parent materials. We're always dealing with, with the lime question. You mentioned about the earthworms bringing the calcium up, which I mean, I assume is calcareous subsoils. Trying to get guys to look at no-till in our, in our acidic soils, or we got to keep adding that lime. Is there any way to follow up with this question that we can get that profile at the pH 6.5 we want and then come in with regular additions on the top and expect that lime to move through the profile over time as long as we keep introducing at the surface? Yeah, I think that that's probably legitimate. Is that a realistic strategy for managing that pH long term if we take those pozoic soils to a strict no-till system? How deep are they? Eight inches, ten inches. And then where does the stuff go when it leaches? Do you lose it? No, it... I mean, your pH goes down, so why does it go down? Well, because our soils are inherently acidic, and we're losing the calcium and magnesium out of the system. For, Where? With cropping, and it's being... Uh, you yeah. take so you should only the, have to replace crop removal. Well, you should, but there's also the high... It's being hydrolyzed, right? With that, and that chemical reaction's being held up in, in, with, with the hydrogen. You're taking me right back to grad school. And you're, you're right. We're dealing with that chemical issue, so and it's always fight, it's always I mean, if it's only eight inches or ten inches. That's realistic. Yeah, I mean that to change the pH there. If you're trying to change the pH to four feet, that gets to be a lot of line. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. That was Dwayne Beck presenting to the National No Tillage Conference in 2016. Before we wrap up today's episode, here's Frank Lester. One more. A number of readers have voiced uh, serious concerns over various types of erosion that are happening, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Soil, wind, and water erosion will continue unless more reduced tillage, such as no-till, is adopted at a much faster rate around the world. With thin and depleted topsoil layers in many areas of the world, especially in Africa, no-till is the best way to overcome losses of our extremely valuable soils. That concludes this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make the series possible. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at b-o-c-o-n-n-o-r at lessetermedia.com. Or call me at 262-777-2413. And don't forget, Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. 
Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening.